American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, help others find it by sharing the episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. He's not one of the more well-known of the Founding Fathers, but he's certainly one of the most important. Right. Normally when we think about the Founding Fathers, we think George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, James Madison, Patrick Henry, and a handful of others. But Charles Carroll doesn't jump to mind in the same way, and that's odd considering his contributions and a few circumstances about his life. For one, he was, by all accounts, the wealthiest man in the colonies at the time of the Revolution. And for another, he was the last of those whom we consider founding fathers to die. He was 95 years old when he finally passed away in 1832. But one big thing against him, he was Catholic, when the laws of the land were against Catholics. So let's start telling his story. His father was also Charles Carroll, as was his grandfather. As was his son, and this caused confusion. So all four of them are identified by something added to their name. So since the first Charles Carroll was the one who came over from Ireland in 1659, he is known as Charles Carroll the Settler. Then his son was born and raised and lived his life in Annapolis, so he is known as Charles Carroll of Annapolis. Then the Charles Carroll of our discussion was given the Carrollton estate by his father when he came of age, so he started signing his name Charles Carroll of Carrollton, and then finally his son was known as Charles Carroll of Homewood, which was the estate Charles Carroll of Carrollton gave to his son as a wedding present. Anyhow, so Charles Carroll of Carrollton was born in 1737 in Annapolis in the colony of Maryland. His family was already fabulously wealthy when he was born, and they were Catholic. At this point, Maryland's laws prohibited the Mass to be celebrated publicly, and Catholics couldn't build churches in public places, but they could have chapels on their own private lands outside of town, and Mass could be offered there. This was the arrangement for the Jesuits at the White Marsh Plantation near present-day Bowie, Maryland. Catholics were permitted to own land, obviously. The Carrolls owned many thousands of acres in different parts of the colony, but Catholics could not hold office or hold a commission in the military. Charles was his parents' only child, and his early education was at a Jesuit academy on Maryland's eastern shore. For those not accustomed to Maryland geography, this means the part of Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay. Annapolis is on the western shore of the bay. A fellow student with Charles was his cousin John Carroll. John Carroll, of course, eventually became the first Archbishop of Baltimore. When Charles was 11, he was sent to France to study at Saint-Omer, the college which the Jesuits ran for English students. He would remain in Europe for 16 years, continuing his studies in Paris and then eventually studying law in London. His tendency toward American independence began while he was living and studying in London. As a Catholic, he was forbidden to engage in formal legal training, but through private tutoring and through much astute observation of judicial and parliamentary proceedings, he learned a great deal. 
A good part of what he learned made him dislike the excesses and corruptions of the English constitutional monarchy and parliamentary system. As early as 1763, when he was only 26, he was recognizing that the approach and attitude that the English took toward the American colonies would compel the colonies to move for independence. He sent copies of various pieces of proposed legislation and legal literature back to his father with his well-educated thoughts about what it all meant for relations between England and the colonies. With this education and experience in hand, he returned to Maryland in 1765. It was at this point that his father gave him the 10,000-acre Carrollton Estate in Frederick County, which is in north-central Maryland. He built a manor house there, which still stands today, but he never lived there full time. He would just stay for a weekend or a month at a time. He lived most of his life at the enormous Carroll family estate, Doregan, which is near Ellicott City, due west of Baltimore. But Carrollton was his, so that was enough to use it as his moniker. He married a cousin, Mary Darnall, and they had seven children, though only three lived past infancy and Charles was his only surviving son. So with all of that as basic biographical information somewhat setting the stage, let's talk about his activities in the lead up to the revolution. Yeah, he mostly stayed out of politics for the first few years after he returned, getting accustomed to managing an estate and being a married man. He moved in social circles that exposed him to political movers and shakers, and he became acquainted with a group called the Independent Whigs. As a Catholic, he was forbidden to practice law, but he was able to have influence through relations and with his pen. In 1773, when the governor of Maryland, and remember, this was the royal governor, not the one elected by the people, when the governor of Maryland decided to impose new fees on the people of Maryland, Carroll took up his pen and, under the pseudonym First Citizen, penned anonymous articles for the Maryland Gazette, arguing against these fees, which he identified as taxes, and he argued forcefully that only the people should have the power to levy taxes upon themselves. He was opposed by a powerful provincial official named Daniel Delaney, who wrote under the name Antillon. Carroll was having the better of the argument, and in anger, Delaney, who knew that Carroll was first citizen, began including invective and anti-Catholic language in his articles. Carroll did not take the bait, but rather ended the argument by noting that when Antillon resorted to, quote, virulent invective and illiberal abuse, we may fairly presume that the arguments are either wanting or that ignorance or incapacity know not how to apply them, unquote. The governor's new fees were defeated in the Maryland legislature. This exchange seemed to galvanize Carroll into political activity, and he began serving on various independence-minded bodies. In 1774, in a major development, he was elected by the people of Anne Arundel County and of Annapolis to represent them in the Provincial Council. By this act, the century-old laws that prohibited Catholics being elected to anything in Maryland were set aside. In October of 1774, in protest of the British excise taxes on tea, Carroll supported the destruction of the ship the Peggy Stewart in Annapolis Harbor, actually giving the order, gentlemen, set fire to the vessel and burn her with her cargo to the water's edge. So Annapolis had their own kind of tea party. It seems so. Things heated up, so to speak, toward a war for independence in 1775, and Carroll was elected to or appointed to a number of committees and bodies that drew up governing documents and established plans for the Maryland colony to defend itself in the event of armed conflict. In 1775, he was elected to be a delegate from Maryland to the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia. This led to his being appointed as a commissioner to Canada, along with Benjamin Franklin and Samuel Chase. 
We talked about this commission in episode three, way back when. They were sent to Canada to seek an alliance with the Canadians against the British crown. Carroll was included because he was Catholic, as were the Canadians, and because he spoke French and four other languages fluently from his years studying in Europe. A quick side note, due to his education in Europe, he was actually the most highly educated person who signed the Declaration of Independence. The commission set off for Quebec in late winter 1776, but the trip was a failure. This was not, however, due to Carol's lack of aplomb and grace. You'll have to listen to episode three to find out more about what happened. Yep. In summer of 1776, Carroll was once again elected to the Continental Congress, but he and the other Maryland delegates didn't arrive until after Congress had voted to adopt the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. They were present, however, on August 2nd, when the official copy of the document was signed. Charles Carroll, as the wealthiest man in the room, was the signer with the most to lose. And so that there could be no ambiguity about which Charles Carroll had signed, as we said, there were a number of them running around, he included of Carrollton. Also during that Congress, he was appointed to the Board of War, a very important body that had a good deal of oversight of the supplying and execution of the war. It was actually out of this body that the infamous Conway Cabal developed, which was a coup attempt against General George Washington. We mentioned this in episode 52 on General Washington's Catholic aide-de-camp John Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald was instrumental in helping Washington to quash the Conway Cabal. I wouldn't be surprised if Carroll helped him in that effort. In 1776 and 77, Carroll helped to write the Constitution of the State of Maryland and made sure it included healthy religious liberty provisions. He left the Continental Congress in 1778 to become a state senator in Maryland. He served as a state senator until 1801, serving as president of the Senate for a number of years. He also was elected to the U.S. Senate from Maryland in 1789, But he had to resign that seat in 1792 when a law was passed prohibiting people from serving in office at both the federal and state levels simultaneously. He believed in a strong central government, but he preferred to work at the state and local level. Carroll retired from political and public life in 1801 to focus on his family and business affairs. One issue, however, that continued to trouble him greatly was slavery. As he inherited his estates, he also inherited many hundreds of slaves. He treated his slaves well, but he very much did not like the institution of slavery, at one time writing in a letter, Why keep alive the question of slavery? It is admitted by all to be a great evil. He did not free his slaves, but he did introduce legislation to abolish slavery in Maryland. It did not pass. Then, when he was 91 years old, he joined and served as president of the American Colonization Society's branch in Maryland. This was an organization dedicated to returning slaves to freedom in African countries such as Liberia. He invested heavily in commercial infrastructure projects such as canals and railroads. His last public act was to lay the first stone, or the cornerstone, of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He was a major investor in the railroad, and he served on its first board of directors. When Carroll died in 1832 at 95 years old, he was the longest-lived signer. Only two others made it into their 90s. And he had outlived all other signers of the Declaration of Independence by six years. The last two prior to him to die were Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who both had died on July 4th, 1826. 
In that year, 1826, Carroll said he was, quote, grateful to Almighty God for the blessing which, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he had conferred on my beloved country in her emancipation, and on myself in permitting me, under circumstances of mercy, to live to the age of 89 years and to survive the 50th year of independence adopted by Congress on the 4th of July, 1776. He died on November 14, 1832, at his daughter and son-in-law's home in Baltimore, which is where he had spent his final years. His funeral was in the Cathedral of the Assumption in Baltimore, that magnificent church that we know as the Baltimore Basilica. His legacy includes counties named after him in 12 states, plus many towns and cities. One of Maryland's statues in Statuary Hall of the U.S. Capitol depicts Carroll, and five historic homes associated with him are still standing. His family estate, Doregan, which is where he was buried, it is a national historic landmark and is open to visitors. Yeah, and hopefully that will be on our itinerary when we do our Catholicism in Colonial America pilgrimage. Date's not available yet, but hopefully coming soon. Absolutely. It'll be a great time there, too. Homewood, which was the estate and house built by his son, Charles Carroll of Homewood, which is now a museum on the campus of Johns Hopkins University. His father's house in Annapolis still stands and is a museum, and on its grounds, the first Catholic church was built in Annapolis in 1852, the very lovely St. Mary Church. The Baltimore mansion where he died, which is a museum today, and finally, the manor house he built at Carrollton. It is in private hands. But his more important legacy is a country grateful for his bravery and his Catholic leadership. Though he had so much to lose, Charles Carroll of Carrollton was willing to risk it all to help our country gain its independence. And he did it with a firm conviction that good Christian morals were of the utmost importance. Concerning the moral foundation of government, he said, Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They therefore who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, and which ensures to the good eternal happiness, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. We also ask you to support the many productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about Charles Carroll of Carrollton, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. <laughs>